Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth weekly episode of HR Works COVID-19 Update. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. It's now been more than three months since the pandemic started here in the United States, and we are starting to see the first COVID-related employee lawsuits. Last week, we began to discuss which employee policies need to be updated or created to handle new legal challenges surrounding the coronavirus. For example, we recently saw a wrongful death and survival action for the coronavirus-related fatality of an employee who worked in a Pennsylvania meat processing plant for the world's largest beef processing company. We are pleased to have back with us today attorney Andrew B. Zellman, partner at Berger Singerman, a business law firm out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Today we will discuss what happens when an employee refuses to return to work, as well as what Andrew is seeing in terms of new lawsuits surrounding COVID-19. Andrew is a member of the dispute resolution team at Berger Singerman. He represents businesses and individuals in a variety of complex commercial disputes, including intellectual property, class action, and general liability cases in both state and federal courts. Andrew also has an established practice devoted to counseling and defending employers in employment litigation. Prior to joining the law firm, Andrew spent years handling a wide range of cases at a full-service AM Law 100 firm. Andrew currently serves as the chair of the Grievance Committee of the Florida Bar and is a member of the Federal Court Practice Committee, a standing committee of the Florida Bar. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us again today. My pleasure. It's great to be back. Last time we began to explore methods for making sure that your employees are made aware of additions and alterations to their employee handbook and policies. What happens if an employee refuses to review or sign the new terms? No, it's a good question. Um, it really depends upon the stated reason for the for the denial. And I, I think a lot of companies right now, uh, despite all of the issues with unemployment offices throughout the country, and I'm from South Florida, and it's, it's really a problem in Florida with the, the DEO office, down here, um, there's some cynicism that um, employers, from employers that I've seen, that employees sometimes would rather not return to work and would rather stay on unemployment due to the, due to the pandemic unemployment uh, benefits that many are receiving. Um, of course, those run out on a date certain or date certain, depending on, on what, what you're receiving it for. Um, but if but in either either event, if an employee expresses cynicism or doubt or outright refuses to sign these documents, really the employer has the burden uh, to engage in a in a dialogue with the employee um, to, to 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 figure out why. And the dialogue really needs to be if the company is putting these procedures, operational procedures, and then of course um, designing an office, for example, to make sure that. Cube, cubicles are six feet away or that offices are six feet away or that there's staggered starts to the week to ensure that there aren't more than X amount of people in the office at any one time to lessen, uh, lessen the risk of, um, of contracting the virus. And then, of course, in certain buildings, um, bu- there are certain office buildings where if you're in the common areas or in the elevator, you have to wear a mask. And so even if the office doesn't require a mask, perhaps the common areas do because in order to get in the building, you have to be wearing a mask. And so if these, um, if the company emphasizes the fact that these protocols are in, coming into place and that the employee really just needs to follow the protocols and speak up if they see it not being uh, followed by other employees or even by the employer, 
that's the first step. If the employee then says, well, that's not good enough for me, um, then it's okay for the employer to ask, well, what do you think should be done? Um, because if the employee is essentially saying, I'm not signing these policies because uh, I don't think that your procedures are adequate, um, then I think it's okay to ask the question. And if the employee has suggestions, you can consider the suggestions. Uh, the most important thing in this scenario, if an employee refuses to sign, is not just the outright dismiss, mark down the employee as a voluntary resignation, which would, of course, eliminate them from eligibility to continue receiving or to receive in the first place unemployment benefits, uh, because that could be seen as a sign of retaliation. The other reason perhaps could be because the employee has some kind of a medical issue to put them at risk. And so normally the advice would be, you can't ask those questions about their medical issues because of the ADA issues and perhaps HIPAA issues. Um, now, uh, if the employee wants to volunteer that information, you're allowed to have that dialogue. So number one thing would be find out why, what is the reason? Uh, if there's no stated reason, despite multiple attempts to accommodate and to engage in a, dis in a discord, um, then the recommendation usually is if all the employees are going to sign, if all the employees are going to, um, uh, follow these protocols and we have one or two or a handful of employees that will not, then you may be, be forced with the decision and it needs to be uniform, uh, to, to not terminate the employee, but make them go on unpaid leave. And that, um, if, if there's no other good reason to do this, uh, for them not to sign, then that really is the recommendation because otherwise you cannot have some employees following the protocol and others who are not without good reason. Um, and so uh, that would be my recommendation, uh, being careful with the caveat that just an outright termination could be viewed as retaliation. And that's something that would perhaps bring litigation to the company that's un unwanted. Um, today, I wanted to ask you, uh, based on your experiences, what you're seeing out there, what types of lawsuits that employers are facing the most right now, and do you feel like it's likely that that'll continue, increase, or, or change? Sure. Um, well, first of all, what, what, I, what we have seen, and I think that this is something that will change, so I'm, I'm going to lightly touch upon it. Uh, there's been a, a lot of foreclosures and a lot of evictions, uh, particularly commercial evictions. Mm. Uh, certainly here in Florida, there was a moratorium uh, that prevented um, that prevented the banks and the landlords from from uh, continuing with even even those evictions and foreclosures that started prior to the to the outbreak or prior to the pandemic, um, uh, but they've that has now been lifted, and so we're seeing a a, a flood of these unfortunate um, uh, evictions uh, from some of your favorite brand name stores and department stores from malls uh, through residentials as well. Um, and so that, that's something I think will will not continue, um, uh, fortunately, and, and hopefully uh, banks will um, be a little more flexible, though Though my understanding is they've, they've tried to be flexible thus far. Um, certainly, there's been an uptick in, in bankruptcy. And again, that's something I'll just touch on. Um, there's been a lot of Chapter 11 in particular, where there's been reorganization. There's been a lot of uh, news articles talking about the shift of wealth. Unfortunately, that's what's happening now. So again, some of your favorite uh, 
uh, hairstylists, uh, haircutting places, uh, uh, fast food restaurants, chains, um, uh, uh, rental car companies are now going to see a change in ownership uh, and a transfer from perhaps the established ownership through to some creditors because unfortunately three months of time uh, of not being able to operate and perhaps a bleak outlook for the rest of the year has, has put them in this position where um, they're not able to either pay their employees or uh, continue to pay their creditors. Um, so th those are two that I, I would hope that would not continue. Um, uh, really the first um, type of litigation on the employment side that I, I, I do see becoming a, a bigger issue going forward, and it's always been a big issue, certainly here in Florida, but I think throughout the country, uh, is, is Fair Labor Standards Act wage and hour cases and, and also the state law derivatives, um, which in some states can be very draconian and, and very harsh on the employer uh, for missing um, either pay periods, uh, not paying the, the right amount of pay, and certainly uh, under the FLSA, not paying overtime, not paying uh, a minimum wage. And so we're going to see a lot of that because principally, um, there's been missed payments. There's been employees that have not been paid. And perhaps on the smaller companies, there's been a promise that, look, I can't make payroll now, um, but, but I will pay you when you come back. That's not necessarily a defense to the FLSA, and certainly in a lot of states it's not if, it's, if the employee has not been laid off or furloughed. The, the general rule is that any time spent working needs to be paid. And if the employer did not make the payment, um, there's going to be FLSA and uh, cases. And certainly we know that, that lawyers on the plaintiff side are incentivized to represent uh, employees because there is prevailing party attorney's fees, which often make these cases expensive, despite the fact that it may be a small minimum wage claim for a few months. Um, so those will continue. Um, the government has not provided any immunity to date, though there has been talks of it to employers who, who you know, are late in making payments. Um, and to give an example, in New Jersey, um, under New Jersey uh, wage payment laws, if you miss a payment by the stated date, which there are two dates every month, you're liable. You're liable for damages. You're liable for liquidated damages, which actually are treble or triple damages in New Jersey, and you're liable for attorney's fees. Other states uh, have similar provisions. Maryland does as well. Um, and, uh, and so it, missing those dates is at your own peril. And it's happened, unfortunately, because employers have not been able to do that. You know, the second part of the FLSA claim that, that, that I think we're going to see more of uh, is when employees have been, uh, let's say, in between furlough and full-time work during the last few months, and they've been asked to perform some work either uh, uh, via telecommuting uh, or, uh, um, or coming into the office, but they've not received their full pay. And they've agreed, uh, I, I'm not going to get paid for these couple of days or this week or this time period. Not necessarily a reduction, but just that I'm going to help out the employer. Um, that's great. And, and if employees have been willing to do that and have been charitable with their time, it's certainly a wonderful thing. What the law would say again, is that any time work needs to be paid. And that's problematic for the hourly uh, um, non-exempt employee um, who 
maybe put an hour or two of work in and was not paid for it and then could surface later and, and make a claim for it. And the reason why it's problematic is that while a conversation that employee decided, I'm going to work for free, I'm not going to work for this time period, would, would constitute perhaps an admission under the FLSA law, most courts would say it's not a waiver. And so the employee would still need to be paid for that time. So that's, that's one component that's difficult uh, for many employers. The second component, which is a bigger issue, is the salaried uh, uh, exempt employees who um, are true, not misclassified, but true exempt employees who essentially get paid by the week. And if they work one hour during that week, even though they, they said, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to expect to be paid or I'm not going to be paid this week. They may have a claim for the entire week worth of wages. So one hour or two hours or three hours of work may make that employee who really should be furloughed an active employee and, and they'd have to be paid for that week. So so those are two, uh, two scenarios under the FLSA claims and certainly under the state law claims. Um, uh, we talked about last segment, um, the issues involving OSHA and OSHA retaliation in particular, and OSHA has come out with many statements stating that compliance with OSHA is not uh, is is a prerequisite to reopening any business. So, following those guidelines that OSHA has prescribed, there's actually a a new OSHA poster. I know for for many years it was the lady with the with the cast on her arm. Uh, this is to supplement that. There's a sep there's a separate poster that can be found on the OSHA website that has the 10 facts um, that, that every employee employer needs to do to reopen. And really the repetition is key with that. Post it all over your office in the break area. Make sure the employees know we need to follow these and they're simple requirements. Um, but refusing to speak with or taking any sort of adverse action against an employee who complains uh, that they feel unsafe in the workplace or that the company is not following either its own protocols or those prescribed by the CDC can be seen as retaliation. And so I do anticipate there being more retaliation claims. There has been some already, though at this point, it's only been reported by OSHA because they've come in the form of whistleblower complaints being sent directly to OSHA and OSHA decides what the next course of action is. And then lastly, um, there, there's likely going to be an uptick in lawsuits involving the, the, the FFCRA, which is the the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which was passed in early April this year, and not to go into full details because I'm sure that most of the listeners here uh, have already uh, seen all of the details, have implemented the FFCRA into their company, and it is for all employers under 500 employees, uh, so what's considered to be a small business, um, where they're required from early April through the end of this year to provide paid sick leave for certain categories of employees up to two weeks, and then partially paid uh, extended family medical leave uh, uh, benefits for other employees. And, and so where, where I see and what I've seen uh, is that there is a, a substantial amount of noncompliance by smaller businesses, and in part because there is an exemption under the FFCRA for under 50 employees. And what the exemption says is that the exemption applies where providing paid leave would jeopardize the viability of the business as a going concern. So it's sort of a, a broad standard 
seems like it would probably apply to a lot of smaller, smaller businesses under 50 employees who may not have to uh, provide this leave. Um, but what the employers are doing and what, I, what I've seen in, in the examples I've seen is that they are completely disregarding the requirement at all, the FFGRA. What needs to happen uh, is that the employer needs to document those, those issues and forecast why providing paid sick leave or extended FMLA leave to their smaller companies and to these particular employees would create this, uh, this would put the business in jeopardy as a going concern. And, and, and I think that the analogy here is very similar to what we're seeing from the Department of Treasury and the various rules and regulations and interim final rules that are coming out under the CARES Act and the, and the PPP. And for those who are, who are getting uh, uh, money from the PPP, there were certain certifications that, that, the, uh, that the applicant needed to sign. Uh, what, the, what the Department of Treasury has stated uh, multiple times, as, had the, as has the, the, the Small Business Administration, is that if those changes, if, if those uh, uh, certifications, which essentially require the employer to say there's a economic necessity for the money, if those change, you need to notify uh, the SBA and the PPP and really the timing of when the change happens. For example, if there's no longer a necessity prior to the money being received, the loan money being received, perhaps there is no necessity and and the company should not receive any of the loan money. It should go to somebody else. Um, in order to safeguard the company who received PPP money, particularly those who received more money, um, they should document the need at every stage. It's the same thing here. Um, if if you have a smaller business, uh, you are you are under the belief that you have an employee, or if an employee came forward and said, "I have a, a young child at home, I need to take care of the young child through the end of the school year," which in most places just ended, um, and so I can't work, and I you need to pay me uh, uh, up to sixty percent of my pay for these twelve weeks. Um, the employer. Uh, rather than just balk at the idea, should really take a look and see, okay, well, this employee is essential. I can't replace this employee. And that going forward, it really would create a hardship and document that in case there is a lawsuit coming forward with, uh, for, for suit under this. So there is some sort of investigation. So, so as a recap, going forward, the biggest concerns I see uh, other than your, your bankruptcy and your uh, landlord tenant issues and, and, and foreclosures are claims under the FLSA, OSHA retaliation, and now under this new FFCRA uh, claims there as well. Uh, concerning specifically the safety risks, um, what's your understanding of businesses and job roles that are facing the most safety risks when reopening? And do you think those inherent risks can be addressed by employee policy? Sure. So, um, What's readily apparent, uh, and, and OSHA has, uh, and I spoke about this last segment, but what, what OSHA has come forward and actually has a, a rubric or a, a triangle chart uh, showing the highest risk to the lowest risk um, uh, workplaces for contracting COVID-19. Uh, the, the, the job roles that face the most safety risks are those that are customer-facing job roles, likely in the medical field, um, 
in, in, in certain types of manufacturing, but, but certainly in the medical and the dental field where you're, um, you know, operating on a patient, looking inside of a patient's mouth, um, uh, and having cr- uh, direct contact with patients. Uh, and, and for those employees, there is a sustained risk. And, and certainly, um, there is a, um, there's a method to deal with that that does reduce the risk to the employee and to the workplace in general. And that is to have the strictest requirements possible, masks, uh, gloves, face shields, um, uh, 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 requiring all uh, customers or patients who come into the workplace or come into the dental office or, or the, the medical office uh, to be, to be uh, um, temperature tested, uh, to sign uh, a document at least stating that they've not had a fever or any symptoms for the last two, two, two days. Um, and, and for that second requirement, it's not necessarily anything that's enforceable, but it has a recidivistic value because a, a client or a patient or a customer who comes in knowing that they need to be honest likely will be honest on a, and if they're experiencing or if they've experienced some symptoms in the last 48 hours or 72 hours, um, there should be a policy that says that the, the patient can't be treated. Frequent hand washing, gloves, um, doing everything possible to protect the employees, the customers, uh, uh, and, and the office in general from, um, from exposure is what's key here. And so, yeah, I, I think the responsibility is going to stay with the employer OSHA would say the same thing. Uh, and so in that case, and to, to hark back to um, something we discussed earlier, Jim, at the last segment about the, the wrongful death lawsuit involving the employee in Pennsylvania who was working on the, the meat processing line. Um, in that case, my understanding is that uh, the, 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 the decedent, the former employee, stated that uh, the company did not provide enough uh, protective equipment, no masks, no proper masks, and didn't, didn't require the employees to, to wear masks. In the dental and in the medical setting, um, it's going to be a heightened standard. And so um, if, if, a, if the operator of the office or the HR personnel or those who are making the policies does not implement um, safer and more stri- safe, safe and more stringent requirements for the employees and for the customers, um, the liability is certainly going to fall more strongly on the employer if there's some adverse consequence. And so certainly following those procedures that we talked about uh, last segment, those policies uh, requiring employees to check in every day and take the same temperature checks um, is re- should be required, should be a necessity. Yeah, thank you. Um, a lot of the changes that have happened in the workplace have been very sudden you know, uh, there's kind of mid-March, everybody got sent home that could get sent home or very shortly afterwards, people started implementing remote work policies. Uh, the, the pace of those change has been, has been very fast. And I think one of the things that people are starting to understand and grapple with is that there are going to be long-term changes and we don't know what many of those are going to be, but we do have an idea to the way that the workplace operates in general. And that also means that the way that HR policies uh, will apply both today and far into the future. Do you think there's any important legal lessons 
that COVID-19 has taught us in terms of HR policies that will still apply long after the pandemic is over? Well, it's 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 a very serious topic, Jim. But you know, to make a joke, it's Murphy's Law. I mean, <laughs> I, I I think here, um, uh, uh, you know, we have to go back to 1918 to really look at at a pandemic that had such global uh, uh, um, consequences, and um, for an economy that is really bursting at the seams, trying to to get out, and for people who really want to get out and, and go back to their normal workday, for some, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and, you know, in the legal profession and being a litigator, uh, or at least a, a, a part litigator, um, I, for certain courts, judges, and perhaps juries, and certainly witnesses are getting used to, to video conferencing for, for hearings, for depositions, and even for trials. Um, that's something that I think will be an option going forward. And so um, with, with employers, there needs to be more of a flexibility, if possible, to consider whether teleworking works for as many employees as possible. And that may take, um, unfortunately, a little bit of a of a, a financial investment for the employer to ensure that uh, it's seamless because otherwise, and I know that for many employers, they don't trust the technology uh, for an employee uh, to, to go home and work in the same manner, or the employee just doesn't have a good internet connection at home. So these things will all have to be addra- addressed. Um, I, they may be in a policy in terms of teleworking. That should be in every handbook. Um, but I think the big reminder, the big legal lesson is that um, the employer really does carry the burden uh, to ensure a safe workplace. It's always been the case. Free from hazards under OSHA, free from uh, viruses, free from diseases that can be airborne or, or, or uh, that can be spread from person to person, uh, but particularly here, free from COVID-19. And so, you know, right now we're dealing with COVID-19. Uh, God forbid what's next, next, but at this point, we know that the employer has to, has to be at the forefront of implementing these strategies, um, much the same as the employer has to maintain proper employee records, has to maintain proper payroll records, has to, has to continue to, to engage in proper re- reporting. And the reporting now extends to COVID-19 under OSHA. And so it's, it's another obligation of the employer, but the employer doesn't have to do it on their own. And so if the handbook, if the handbook by including acknowledgements um, for these additional policies or supplements, uh, by making the language in the policies place the onus on the employee so that is a joint and shared responsibility, that really should be the lesson going forward, that though the employer is required to do these things in order to run its business, it is another sort of barrier to entry into business or, or whatever industry you're in. Um, the employee needs to be able to, to comply. It needs to be easy for the employee to comply. And so repetition is key, uh, posting, uh, um, signs throughout the, the the office where it's not um, you know uh, where where it's not an issue um, uh, it should should happen in the break room in the break areas reminding people should be something that 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 is a long term uh, a long term plan up up until there's a vaccine or some something else to get rid of or, or further guidance to tell us that we don't need to do this anymore. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure.
Absolutely. Listeners, please check back next week for the next episode of HR Works COVID-19 update. Uh, you can always follow us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast. Uh, if you have any concerns or questions about the podcast, you can leave them there. Uh, you can always email me at jdavis.blr.com. If you uh, have any ideas for what you want to appear next, or if you have any questions that you might want answered on air, which we can try and do for you. Um, thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.